presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about Umbridge. Welcome, everybody, to episode 52 of First Years. Today, we're going over chapters 12 and 13 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So we have some House Points news. It's been a while, but the totals are... So Hufflepuff has 325 points. Slytherin has 110 points. Ravenclaw has 80 and Gryffindor has 75. I'm seeing a lot of new faces in our trivia and our stories on Wednesdays, which makes me really excited. I love calculating it and seeing who is racking up points for their house. So if you want to earn house points, you can participate in our Mindful Magic Mondays. I pose a question on Instagram at First Year's Pod on Mondays. And all you have to do is answer it and let me know what your house is and you'll earn points. You can also earn points by participating in our trivia. You get five points automatically for participating, and then you get an extra five points for every correct answer you have. You can also earn points by rating and reviewing the podcast and leaving your name and Hogwarts house to get a shout out on here and earn double house points. We left off with the Sorting Hat song warning us of the consequences of being divided and Harry's argument with Seamus. And we find out that it's not just Seamus, but Lavender thinks Harry is lying too. And we see here how Harry is affected by all of this because he keeps lashing out at his best friends and Hermione has to remind him that they're on his side. And I've totally been in a situation before where I've just been so angry that I end up lashing out at people that I really shouldn't be lashing out at because they're not the ones I'm upset with. But if you don't have an outlet to let those feelings out, then that's what's going to happen because you can't help it. It's this reaction that can't be helped all the time where your energy and your anger gets directed elsewhere because it can't go where it should you know, into something more recreational or healthy. And Hermione reminds us of what Dumbledore said last year, which is similar to what the hat just reminded us of, that Voldemort is really good at sowing discord between people, and that makes it easier for him to control things and divide people, and harder for them to stay bonded and have each other's backs. And Hermione also says that it's a shame that no one's trying to have more interhouse unity, which Yes, I've been saying since book one, we need to have some interhouse community and friendships, and we barely see any. The closest is like Cedric dating Cho last book, if you don't count people becoming friends with people at the other schools. But perhaps the school will unite over Fred and George's newest creations. We see their ad in the dormitory for test subjects for their new invention slash creation. 
and Hermione wants them to take it down. But Ron isn't so happy about that. And it's tough to have to stand up to your brothers like that. It makes me wonder if Percy ever tried to get Fred and George in line, but something tells me that he maybe tried it once and it didn't really work and he didn't try it again. But Fred and George also give us a warning about what to expect this year. OWLs. They have their biggest exams coming up and they talk about how all of the students ended up having mental breakdowns and horrible times during their year because they're super important because they can affect what type of jobs you can apply for when you graduate. And Fred and George explain that they don't really need the next exams, any WTs, but they can't say that they have money for a joke shop yet because it's still a secret. And Hermione and Ron can't figure out what their plan is or where they would have gotten the money from. So owls are really important, and it brings up the discussion of what they want to do outside of Hogwarts, which we haven't really thought about before. And so that's another thing that leads us into seeing how this book has leveled up and grown up again. We're now starting to think about what they'll do after Hogwarts. And it's interesting that this happens after we saw the ministry and got exposed to what wizards who work in this world do for a living. We got to see Arthur's office and the Order office. We know about what Bill does and what Charlie does. So it can give us a little bit of an idea of what their lives might look like outside of school. After this, they go through what they think is the worst day schedule ever. They go to history of magic and then potions, divination, and defense against the dark arts. On their way to potions, Harry runs into Cho, and yet again, they don't have the most ideal meeting. It's very awkward, even without Ron interrupting it to question her about the tornado's badge. They talk about the weird incident on the train with the stink sap, and then Harry asks her about her summer, which had to have been as awful as Harry's because she had been dating Cedric before he was murdered. But what also stands out to Harry is that out of everyone who has a right to be mad at him or not trust him after the events of book four, Cho isn't one of them, even though she had been dating Cedric, which is a big deal. Like, yes, Harry's crush is talking to him and that's a big deal. But given the circumstances and the fact that people closer to Harry have turned their backs on him, like Percy and Seamus, but Cho hasn't, that's also a big deal. What do you think about that? What would you do in Cho's position? And what do you think it means? We get our first potions class of the year, and Snape is as unpleasant as ever. Harry forgets an ingredient, and Snape calls him out in front of the entire class and gives him a zero. Hermione says that she thought that Snape would have been nicer this year, given that he's part of the Order of the Phoenix, but Ron insists that people like Snape don't change, and that Dumbledore is crazy for trusting him. Since he's never seen any evidence, he stopped working for Voldemort. Hermione makes the point that Dumbledore probably has evidence, but doesn't share it with Ron. But to Ron's credit, we don't, as readers, 
know what the evidence is that Dumbledore has that redeems Snape. So do you think Dumbledore has evidence? Or is he crazy for putting any trust into Snape? What kind of evidence do you think would redeem a Death Eater enough to be trusted? I also want to point out that in the Ministry, we saw Arthur and Kingsley pretend not to know each other. So this could also just be Snape keeping up appearances. After all, it would be a little sus if he was nice all of a sudden and was acting completely differently. There's also two little things that I wanted to point out. So Snape uses Evanesco to make Harry's potion disappear. But Bill used it earlier in this book to hide papers that were important to the order. So how do you think this spell works? Where do disappeared objects go? Because for a potion, I would have expected the spell to just make it go away. Like throwing it in the trash, it just disappears. But for papers in the order, you want to be able to access those again. So do you think the spell has an end point where the caster has to send the item? Otherwise, does it just all hang out in another plane of existence and then it can be recalled from there? What do you think? The other small thing I wanted to point out is a small detail that occurs right after divination, but before Defense Against the Dark Arts. Ron complains about the homework that they have to do. He says, quote, Bins set us a foot and a half long essay on giant wars. Snape wants a foot on the use of moonstones. And now we've got a month's dream diary from Trelawney, unquote. Okay, so yeah, the dream diary probably is a lot of work since you have to make sure you do it every day. But the essays, like just over a single printer page length essay, guys, Come on now, pretty sure by their age, I needed to write like 10 page papers using 12 point font and not my own handwriting. That really doesn't seem that bad to me. Like sure, the research might take a while, but the actual length of the essay isn't something to complain about. But perhaps I'm jealous because all through college, 25 page papers were the norm. (laughs) Enjoy the paper length while you have it, Ron, please. So at the end of this chapter, we have Defense Against the Dark Arts, and we see Umbridge in action in the classroom for the first time. And it is wild. Harry is unbelievably gaslit in this situation, and we find that the Ministry's interference at Hogwarts in regard to this subject is that they just won't teach the students practical skills at all. Which, if you've been listening to the news recently, there are some states that are making insane mandates over what can and can't be taught in schools, banning certain books that are super important. Again, huge overlap here between our present, 2022, and this book, which was published in 2003. Umbridge talks to the students like they're little children, making sure that they speak back to her when she says good afternoon. And she has to, like, spell everything out for them in the classroom. When she puts the course aims on the blackboard, the goals are to understand the principles, recognize situations, and putting the defensive magic into a context for practical use. 
And Hermione catches on right away. There's nothing said about using defensive spells. And Umbridge's reasoning, which is where the gaslighting starts and becomes a whole thing until Harry loses it, is that they aren't going to be attacked in class, so why would they need to use defensive spells? There's a lot to unpack here, so excuse me if my thoughts are all over the place on this. Of course they're not going to be attacked in class. That's kind of the whole point of a learning environment. It's that you can learn certain skills in a safe environment so that when a situation arises in which you need to use those skills, you can. Like kickboxing. You don't learn how to defend yourself because you think you're going to get attacked in class. You learn because outside the classroom, if someone is trying to attack you, you then have the skills to be able to defend yourself quickly enough to buy you time to escape. When Hermione brings up the fact that this is the whole point of the class, Umbridge says that because Hermione isn't a, quote, ministry-trained educational expert, unquote, she isn't qualified to decide what the whole point of any class is. She continues, quote, wizards much older and cleverer than you have devised our new program of study, unquote. Just dismissing Hermione's perspective on the class instead of engaging in a real conversation about it. Why do teachers need to be ministry trained? It doesn't seem like any of the other teachers are. The fact that we now have ministry-trained educational experts is pretty scary, and it shows, again, what we learned on the first night of term, that the ministry is interfering. They're withholding key information for students to keep them in the dark. There's a practical part of the OWL exams, and Umbridge insists that as long as they have a strong enough theoretical knowledge, they should be fine. So they'll be doing the spells for the first time in the exam room. You can't see me, but I'm facepalming a great strategy here. And it's the view of the ministry that it should be good enough for their students. But really, when we look at the text and how even in a single class period, students don't normally master a spell by the end of it. We've seen that before in these books, where Hermione might master it, but other people aren't quite getting the hang of it. So they're really undermining the success of their students. And for exams that will affect their futures. Remember, these tests affect what jobs they can apply for after school. This is a very serious situation. Not to mention that Umbridge refers to Lupin as a half-breed, which gives us more insight into her character and the views of the ministry. And Harry interjects to make a point about what's going on in the real world, because that is what school is for, to prepare you for what is out there. And she gaslights him, and it is so difficult to read and not seethe with anger at her and for Harry, because Harry has been through an ordeal. He is still processing everything that has happened to him last book, and yet Umbridge is like, who could possibly want to attack children? Voldemort isn't back, and Cedric's death was an accident. 
She calls Harry a liar in front of everyone and essentially tells the class to come to her if anyone is spreading misinformation. It's just like what we spoke about in the hearing. Just like how Fudge can't explain the Dementors because he simultaneously says that the Dementors are under ministry control, and yet the ministry didn't order an attack on Harry, Cedric's death was apparently an accident, but how? What is their reasoning for Cedric's death then? If they weren't there and have zero details about what went on in the maze and in the graveyard, do they think Harry killed him? What's their theory to explain it? It's just so, ugh. And so Harry gets point stocked and gets detention every evening. He's sent to McGonagall, and I have mixed feelings about this scene because on one hand, I love the have a biscuit moment, almost like she's secretly rewarding him for what he's doing. However, when she's explaining that Harry needs to be careful around Umbridge, she says, quote, do you really think this is about truth or lies? It's about keeping your head down and your temper under control, unquote. I don't like how she calls it his temper. He was gaslit. He's angry. He's been angry since the beginning of this book. And can you blame him? He's literally working through trauma and yet is expected to move on and act normally. He's 15. He has all of these feelings that he doesn't know what to do with. He knows he is right, and yet people are acting like he's crazy and a liar. And he's getting punished for standing up for himself. He's being asked to sit back and allow everyone to speculate, which seems really unfair. Obviously, there are other things at stake here. The Order has a mission they're on. They have to maintain secrecy, and Umbridge is interfering with everything, so I understand the need for caution. But no one seems to be giving Harry the support that he needs. And it all gets worse in the following chapter. Everyone is gossiping about what happened in class, and they're not hiding it from Harry. It says that they're hopeful that he would lash out again so they could hear about it. And Hermione gives us insight into what it was like at the end of fourth year last book. Harry just appeared with Cedric's body and no one saw what was in the maze. And it was only Dumbledore's word explaining that you know who had killed Cedric, which is interesting because Dumbledore is this figure that up till now has been really respected in the wizarding world. And yet they didn't believe him on this. And then everyone spent two months reading the Daily Prophet and how Harry is crazy. So they were influenced by the paper and tossed out Dumbledore's account of what happened and instead listened to the government-run paper, which makes sense. Like, you want to trust what your government is telling you, but that's why it's all the more important to print things that are true. And it begs the question of why Umbridge had to get hired in the first place. Hermione complains about how Dumbledore could hire her during such an important year, and they go back and forth over how people think the position is jinxed and how hard it is to hire someone for that position. Because, you know, if you remember, last year was pretty last minute. 
So do you think this was the ministry telling Dumbledore that he had to hire their pick? Or was there literally no one else left for the job? Could Dumbledore not have taught this class himself? What do you guys think? And what do you think about the ministry interfering in their education like this? Do you think they should have a hand in it or no? I know there's no clear-cut answer here to something like that, especially when we relate it back to our own world. There's room for a lot of nuance, but it's something to reflect on given how the ministry is preventing kids from learning what they need to. And today in our society, we're seeing politicians stop children from learning about factual history and diversity and things like that. So what do you think? In the common room, Fred and George are in action testing their products on other students, and Hermione decides to call them out again. But this time, she doesn't do it with the threat of a normal school punishment. Instead, she goes for the more serious threat, saying that she'll write to Mrs. Weasley if they don't stop. And it's a serious threat. It says, quote, Fred and George looked thunderstruck. It was clear as far as they were concerned, Hermione's threat was way below the belt, unquote. What do you think about this? It's an interesting power dynamic we have here in the Gryffindor common room. Fred and George feel like they can do whatever they want because Ron isn't going to call them out on it, and they don't see Hermione as an authority figure either. Like, even if she did give them detention or lines or something, they probably would find a way out of it or have it turn into a prank on her or something. But at the same time, Hermione does have a responsibility to protect the younger students. Yes, Fred and George have tested it on themselves, but they also have to put a disclaimer in their ad that everything is undertaken at the applicant's own risk. Of course, they don't mean to hurt anyone, but these are prototypes, really. They're trying to make sure that Other people don't have a reaction or that everything works on others in the same way it worked on them. So is there a side to take here? Should this have been handled in a different way or is this way okay? Do you think Hermione's threat was real or do you think she was just saying that as a way to get Fred and George to listen to her? Hermione then decides that she can't focus on homework and we see the next iteration of Spew. Hermione has knitted hats for the house elves, which she is then hiding under trash, so they accidentally pick them up. And Ron says that's not right because she's trying to trick them into picking up the hats, and that'll set them free when they might not want to be. And Hermione insists that, of course, they want to be free. We've talked a lot about Spew before and whether Hermione is in the right or the wrong on this because she is trying to do the right thing, because any creature in this world shouldn't be enslaved like house elves are. But house elves seem to be made for this role they play in wizarding society. But if we think about that in a greater context of the actual writing of this series, what do you think that says? Having an entire race of creatures that enjoy being slaves to others and don't get paid instead of it being something that they want to escape from. What kind of message is that? Does that influence your opinion on house elves or no? 
or do you just accept them as part of this world and it doesn't need to go much deeper than that? Do you think what Hermione is doing is right or is she in the wrong here? And another question I thought of in regard to this is who does the laundry? Can house elves touch clothing at all? You would think that would be part of their job in the castle and in wizarding homes, but I wonder if it's all about intention, because Hermione is purposefully leaving them out for the house elves to find in order to free them. It also brings up an interesting question of who can dismiss house elves, especially if this all relies on intention. Harry helped free Dobby, but ultimately it was Lucius Malfoy who handed the sock to Dobby you know, by, by tossing it accidentally. Harry didn't just toss a sock to Dobby. So that makes me think that it would have to come from the master of the elf. How do you think this works? In the other classes the next day, the teachers again impress the importance of the owls. Flitwick says that it can affect their futures for many years to come, and so they have to start thinking of their careers. Which... Seems kind of early, and I know they're all only two years away from being legal adults in the wizarding world, but it still seems early to be putting all this pressure on them to figure out what they want to do for the rest of their lives. At least in our muggle world, we have college first, which is really our chance to figure it out. And like, yeah, you start to think about this in high school pretty early as you have an eye on colleges. But you have a lot of people who go to college without having a specific career path in mind. What do you think we can expect from the Owls this year? Especially since the other teachers seem insistent on practical magic, practice for the exams. Flitwick spends all class on it, and meanwhile, Umbridge is keeping her class magic free. It's a very jarring juxtaposition, and I think it says a lot about how things are normally supposed to go versus what the ministry is doing. McGonagall says, quote, you cannot pass an OWL without serious application, practice, and study, unquote. And speaking of teachers, we get our first Care of Magical Creatures class without Hagrid teaching. And it seems like people are already liking Grubbly Plank better than Hagrid. They're shown Bowtruckles, which are creatures that live in wand trees, and although they seem harmless, they will attack humans when necessary, so it's best to ask permission when you need wood or leaves from the tree. And so Hagrid has a reputation of showing them dangerous creatures, right? And Harry makes the point that they've never been shown boring creatures, But I think it's also interesting to see a defense against the dark arts class compared with how a magic class should run, like in charms or transfiguration, and then a care of magical creatures class, which is run how it's probably supposed to be run without crazy dangerous creatures like blast-ended scroots. Malfoy drops hints that he might know what Hagrid is up to. Just like him dropping the hint that he noticed Sirius on the train platform. How does Malfoy have all the insight? Where do you think he's learning it from? 
Harry poses the question of whether or not the Death Eaters had information that the Order didn't have on Hagrid. So if Draco is picking up on information that his father is getting from other Death Eaters, that's concerning, especially regarding his involvement. I would be shocked if Draco didn't know his father was a Death Eater. Something tells me that even if Lucius acts all normal in public, he definitely shares that part of himself with the rest of his family. So although Harry has been frustrated with other people not believing him, we get some support for Harry in the second chapter. Luna says it outright to him, and although people like Lavender won't take her word for it, even Hermione doesn't, Ernie McMillan steps up to the plate, and that seems to stop Lavender in her tracks, which is a good thing. So not everyone is against Harry. There are some people in the school that are on his side and believe him and Dumbledore. And I think that's really important for Harry to have right now. There have been times in these books where it seemed like everyone was against him, like when they lost all those house points and when he was named Triwizard Champion. It's been rough at school before, and I think this is even more serious of a situation because of everything Harry has been through. And it makes a big difference to have some people behind him that aren't just his closest friends. And that support, I think, is going to become even more important from what we see in the rest of these two chapters when Harry serves detention with Umbridge. First, Umbridge says that Harry is spreading evil, nasty, attention-seeking stories, which isn't true by any means. Why would Harry want that kind of negative attention that he's been getting? And secondly, the actual detention is torturous. And before it starts, Harry manages to not say anything to her when she says that first thing to him. And she responds with, quote, there, we're getting better at controlling our temper already, aren't we? Unquote. Again, that word temper, even though Harry is more than justified to be as angry as he is, especially at people who say he's lying when none of them were there to see the horrors that he has. Umbridge makes him write, I must not tell lies, and the quill uses his own blood as ink and carves the message into his skin every time he writes it. And he's doing it for hours and hours until she lets him leave. And what I think is really sad here is the power dynamic. She's doing this to gaslight him and have the upper hand, and Harry knows that she's looking for a sign of weakness but he refuses to give her the satisfaction, even though he has more than a right to be upset and not have to muscle through a punishment like this that is literally physically hurting him and possibly scarring him forever. He still decides not to say anything and not to react during it. And then Harry won't even share with Ron what she actually made him do. Same with Hermione. And at first, he isn't sure why he isn't telling them, but he says, quote, he only knew that he did not want to see their looks of horror. That would make the whole thing seem worse and therefore more difficult to face. He also felt dimly that this was between him and Umbridge, a private battle of wills, and he was not going to give her the satisfaction of hearing that he had complained about it. 
unquote. Harry feels like he needs to carry all of this on his own. We've seen that before in this book with everything that happened with Cedric and the Triwizard Tournament. Like, Ron and Hermione are there for him, but they weren't physically there. And so they can't really understand what he went through. And it's almost like because Harry was so alone early on in this book, now he feels like he has to continue to be alone now. Finally, he does have to tell Ron when Ron catches the cut on his hand. We find out that Ron wants to be on the Quidditch team, and in the exchange, Harry lifts his hand on accident and Ron notices. He immediately says that Harry should go to McGonagall or Dumbledore, and Harry refuses, again, not wanting to be the quote-unquote weak one and go for help. But there is no way this punishment can be legal in this school, so it would probably be a good thing to go to somebody. The other thing, though, is that Harry doesn't want to go to Dumbledore because Dumbledore hasn't spoken to Harry since last June. Dumbledore stopped by the headquarters of the Order before Harry's trial and didn't say hello. He represented him at his hearing, didn't look or speak to Harry, so he's definitely acting odd. And as someone who saw firsthand the events that occurred after Harry arrived back with Cedric's body last year, You would think Dumbledore would be checking in on Harry every moment to make sure he was okay. But he isn't. And now Harry feels like he can't go to him. What do you think that says about their relationship? Why do you think Dumbledore is acting like this? Harry should be going to Dumbledore, not just because of what she's making him do, but because of what happens on the last night of detention. When she takes his hand pain sears in Harry's scar, which we've come to associate with Voldemort being nearby. Harry tells Hermione about it, and she makes the point that Voldemort probably wouldn't have to possess anyone anymore because he has a body of his own. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for him to control someone still. Right? What do you guys think it means? I can see Voldemort wanting influence over someone in the school to be close to Harry, which if that is the case would mean that Voldemort has a lot of influence over the ministry too. And maybe the ministry doesn't even realize it, like we saw with Fudge talking to Lucius Malfoy, which is pretty scary to think about. It almost seems like we can't tell whether the ministry and Voldemort are two separate threats right now, or one threat combined. Just like with the Dementors, they either came from the Ministry or they came from Voldemort. But perhaps they're one and the same. What do you think it means? And Hermione says that Harry should go to Dumbledore. And again, Harry refuses. And I think this second moment reveals even more about this situation. Harry thinks that Dumbledore is only concerned with his scar and nothing else, which, honestly, Harry kind of has evidence of that in this book. Dumbledore hasn't been checking on him at all. He barely says hello to him. Or I shouldn't say barely, he doesn't say hello to him. And then Harry decides that he's going to tell Sirius, and Hermione says that he can't put all of that in a letter. And so Harry says, all right, all right, I won't tell him then. 
and he's irritated because he needs to speak to someone about this and he's being blocked from doing so. I asked in a Mindful Magic Monday recently about whether or not the secrecy of the order affects Harry's mental health. And a lot of you said yes. And I think this is a perfect example of it. Harry is ready to share this information so he doesn't have to carry it himself. And yet he can't put it in a letter because secrecy comes first. So how does that affect him? Is secrecy more important? How would you balance the two? Is there a balance that's even achievable? What do you think? These two chapters have given us a lot to think about, so please share your thoughts with me at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at firstyearspod. Remember, if you want to earn house points, you can participate in our Mindful Magic Mondays and our Trivia on Wednesdays and interact with our Instagram posts in general. You can also rate and review the podcast. And if you leave your name on Hogwarts House, you'll get a shout out on here as well as earn extra house points. For next episode, you need to read chapters 14 and 15. And I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones-Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash firstyearspodcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.